Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Joe Lemon, and today's guest is with Nick Klingensmith. This is somebody that's a sales leader. He's an endurance runner, which I believe equates closely to like having great sales performance. That same mindset transfers really well. But most importantly, his backstory is phenomenal. He's a four-time cancer survivor, type 1 diabetic, and a recovering alcoholic. So he's navigated all these different health issues and it's just things that I think people go through that they don't, so, they don't really share. He's transparent in this conversation. He's real, he's raw. And we cover a ton during this conversation. Everything from the disconnect between people that are actually selling boots on the ground, like the frontline salespeople versus sales leadership. No one is a big disconnect there. Lazy leadership and some of the problems that happen on both sides too, like this lazy employees, people are not, people are not owning it. And so, and I think if you're needing a good kick in the butt or you, or if you need to be in this place, we need to transition where you've been complaining about your life. You're not grateful about what you do have. Man, Nick is a great guy to actually listen to and just get you excited about the opportunity that's right in front of your face. Make sure that you connect with Nick on LinkedIn. He has a book on Amazon too, Through the Fire. You guys can go check that out. Links will all be in the show notes. With that being said, I know you guys are going to love it. So let's just dive right in with Nick Klingisman. So we're live. So I'm excited to have Nick Klingensmith with me on the podcast. Um, dude, this is the easiest conversation I'm probably going to have all week because you start talking about the disconnect between leadership and just company objectives and what the sales teams or your revenue drivers don't really understand what they're actually responsible for. Your backstory is phenomenal. I want to like downplay that. But this was just such a hot topic. I was like, bro, we got to stop. We, we got to press record. This needs to be documented. So welcome <laughs> on to the show, Nick. Joe, thanks again. So we were discussing how I like to set really big goals, but they're not abstract. They're very tangible. For one example, I'm just going to give you an example of something. I wanted to, my goal, my fitness goal, my physical goal this year, the fourth goal, I only set five a year, was to finish in the top 10 in the Spartan Race Ultra in Killington, Vermont. Um, and for the second out of 30 years, I didn't even finish the race. I DNF'd this time I made it to transition. I think 40, maybe, maybe, maybe 40% of the people finish the race. It's really challenging. I don't set a goal to just go run a 5k. And what that kind of segued into is how, you know, as I've been kicking off my speaking and coaching business, I've just been talking to people all day, every day, primarily on LinkedIn, a lot of business people, salespeople and leaders. And there is such a disconnect between what leadership and what corporate expects from their sales force and what the sales force understand to be expected from them. Now, I've been in leadership a long time. And <clears throat> if you ever asked me, I would tell you that every single person who worked for me knew what their goal was and where they were to goal because I talked about it all the time. But I'm not naive. I know that if you ask some of them, they would also tell you, oh, I have no idea what my goal is. So some of the disconnect is just who you're talking to. But I can tell you from personal experience, you know, even in the last job that I had, there was a huge disconnect from what was expected from leadership and how to achieve it. So the thing about setting big goals is I had a plan on how to get there. I had all those small metrics and small benchmarks of things that you're supposed to do and achieve along the way. But if you don't have a clear goal, mm -hmm. you're not going to achieve anything. <laughs> You know, like uh, one of the things that I've been saying a lot lately, especially for remote sales professionals, is their days are getting shorter and shorter. It doesn't help that it's like pitch dark outside at like 2.30 in the afternoon now, but even the most motivated salespeople, when they're out there in the day, you know, and all of a sudden it's getting darker, you're getting tired, you're not having communication from corporate, 
there's they're just hiring people and throwing sending them sending them a computer and saying go get them. There comes a point where all of a sudden the rep is like, yeah, I'm gonna go sit on the couch for a while. I've done enough, but they don't know if they have. And you know I'm one of the most self driven people on the planet. I mean that can't possibly be true, but I'm very self driven and I feel the same way, right? Give you another example where I was talking to a lot of reps and asking them about their relationship with their manager and how, what are the managers doing to inspire and motivate them throughout the day. And the most common theme I heard from people was, I only hear from my manager when I did something wrong. Mm. And now they're saying it as a problem because they are saying, I don't know when I'm doing something right. I don't know if I'm on track. I don't know when I'm veering off track. I only know when I did something wrong. And I actually talked to a couple of the managers and even a VP in some of those organizations. They don't know that I was talking to each of them. These are separate conversations. And the sales leaders in those companies were almost boasting how, I don't need to talk to my people. I trust them. Uh, I don't need to micromanage. There's a big disconnect because all I heard from the manager was, I don't want to do my job. And accountability is not micromanagement. Mentorship is not micromanagement. Coaching is not micromanagement. Helping people to understand their goals and what they need to achieve them is not micromanagement. Man, um, man, uh, Nick, there's, there's a ton there, because honestly, um, I forgot to even open up with, you know, with your backstory too, because I think that plays a lot into the actual pieces of this conversation and the importance of having empathy for both sides of that spectrum. And, you know, whenever you go through something that's like adverse, right? Like that adds a whole nother context into your life. But this, this whole conversation around micromanagement, I think if we peel back the onion a little bit deeper on this, right? I, I think there's more here. Uh, I know you're from, um, I think, I think you're from like, Outside of Boston, is that right, Nick? Yeah, we gave it away. <laughs> all the all the memorabilia in the background, right? So I'm a diehard Steelers guy, so this is going to be a hard conversation for us to have. But uh, but, but, but either way, Mike Tomlin, man, um, uh, had this thing that where he was on this one podcast and he was talking about how he was saying if we don't micromanage our actual team, and he was talking about his actual like coaching team at the time, he was like, they don't need me. Then I don't need to have a job. It's like, if I'm not doing that, then I'm not doing the job. And I think if we peel it back even a little bit further, there's something about failure, too, in, in the actual company culture that I believe opens us up to these opportunities. Because once I was an actual trainer, I looked like once I was at my best, I looked to like, like fail. It was all about failing. I only cared about failing. I didn't care about reaching whatever number I set for the reps for us to hit. It was like, I want to see what you got. Right. And it wasn't even about like this, this actual obtaining the actual goal as it was about, did you give it, did you give everything that you had to give today? Right. And, um, when you talk about having big goals, man, I mean, I think there's something about micromanagement and this company culture aspect of avoiding failure that I think kind of creates that disconnect. What's your thoughts on that? On the whole piece? Yeah. Then we lost you for a second. I caught you at I'm out. This company culture at avoiding failure, and then it froze. Ah, oh, damn, dude! I was on a whole rant, man. So, <laughs> am I back now? Oh no, I'm losing you again here. Oh shit! Any any luck? We're back. Oh, are we back? You were back. 
I, uh, I'll tell you something. I was in the thing I liked about sales is it's about numbers. And I am, I was a typical salesperson where I didn't believe in process. I didn't believe in numbers. I didn't want to be managed. It was all about who was going to like me. I was this barstool salesperson who could sell anybody anything. And, you know, there came a point though, and I hated the micromanagement culture of my telecom company because they did tell you how many dials, how many doors, how many of this, how many of that. But what I didn't realize is that they were teaching me a process for success. Even if I didn't like their numbers, like even now, which I don't know if you can see this, but I'm now prospecting for coaching and speaking opportunities. I have no earthly idea what my numbers should look like, my ratios, my activity numbers. I don't know how many contacts I need, how many meetings I need. So what am I doing? I'm tick marking every single piece of activity that I do throughout the day. I'm putting it into a spreadsheet and I'm, stu and I'm studying it as I'm going because I want to know what's the most effective way for me to spend my time. And, you know, you mentioned something when we kind of kicked this off about the empathy of exploring both sides. Mm -hmm. Part of that is just a one of the aspects of a resilient mindset is open mindedness, because if you're so rigid in your thinking, you can't you're going to spend all your mental energy defending your narrow-minded view instead of being open-minded to the fact that, hey, I just spent my entire life learning and for some reason I decided to stop learning and think that I know everything. That's not resilience. That's ego. And ego doesn't accomplish like anything unless you're a pop star or professional wrestler and maybe, maybe a politician. So, <laughs> but I had to learn that the hard way too, right? Because yeah. I remember I was thinking about this lately. I mean, when you're starting off something new, you know, for a minute, I've been terrified of failure. And I'm like, you know what? 20 years ago, I lived in a 500 square foot apartment. Um, I couldn't pay all my bills in one month at a time. I absolutely hated my job. And I wasn't afraid of anything. But once you start to accomplish stuff, once you start to achieve things, you start to build up fear that comes with it. It's like this residual negativity that, that doesn't belong there. And I'm looking back at my past and I was like, look at what I built from nothing. Why am I so afraid now. There is something that happens. You're absolutely right about that too, Nick. There's something that happens whenever you start to have a, you know, have a glimmer of like winning, right? A success that, that, that you, you almost paint yourself in this corner. And it's, it's kind of weird because yeah. like, I, I definitely recall being in that, at that spot where you're like, just, you're, you're broke. You don't have anything. One bedroom, one bath apartment, right? Like, but you're happy though. I mean, I was happy during those times too. But man, I was broke, you know, <laughs> you know, and I was frustrated. But I was happy too, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was happy and I was frustrated too because I, I didn't have these big shiny things that I thought were going to like change my whole world around. And, um, and I was also very dangerous, right? Because there wasn't too much I was afraid of because I didn't have anything to really lose, you know, like I didn't have too much to really kind of like fall off from. And as we get older, we kind of lose that dangerous, like, I don't know mindset i feel like are just that edge and being willing to compete um knowing that knowing that there's this disconnect between leadership and people that are on the front lines like what's some like elements from the leadership standpoint that you think leaders are maybe overlooking about being dangerous at at their current roles i think a lot of times once i see leaders you, you see a much more reserved aspect like you hear people talking about hey i don't gotta micromanage right i mean i mean could you kind of speak to that for a little bit yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny what you said about being dangerous, right? 
-hmm. being dangerous versus dealing with danger. When we're up and coming, we're dangerous because we got nothing to lose, right? We're the scrappy young kids, like, and then all of a sudden everything else becomes dangerous. Like when you accomplish something, we're not afraid, you know, we're not the dangerous one anymore. Instead, we start being timid about danger. <clears throat> and I'm almost a contrarian in this on the what I'm about to say, because where I came up in leadership and, you know, I mean, just two seconds on my story, right? Like I've almost died a million times. I'm a recovering alcoholic. Like my, my life has been marked by learning and personal development the entire time. And so I did a lot of brash and stupid things as a young leader. And also the environment that I was in sort of, I don't want to say encouraged it, but did foster a little bit of edginess. So for a while, I definitely was not that reserved leader. I was the one who was constantly trying to drive others. I just didn't know how to do it yet. You know, it was almost like, hey, I know better for you. So I'm going to yell at you to how to do it. Like it took a lot of learning experience for that. And I do think that a lot of what that disconnect comes from these days is the fact that, and I'm just going to, my former boss, I had a conversation with her like a couple months ago where I was starting to struggle in my sales role. And I directly asked her, what should I be doing different? Hmm. Not only could she not answer the question, she got frustrated with me for asking it. And so what can leaders be doing right now? Be vulnerable. I expect you to help me. I don't expect you to have all the answers. Her best response should have been like, you know what? I'm not sure. She didn't even ask for specifics on what I was doing. So be vulnerable. Like, you know what, Joe? I'm not entirely sure. Let's talk about what you're doing. Okay. Well, here's some of the best practices the other guys are doing. I'll tell you what. I don't actually know, but let's work on this together. Let's figure out how we can't. Like, let me support you. Let me be a partner instead of me defending my ego by pretending I have all the answers, but I'm just not going to share them with you. <laughs> I think that's a huge part. I think leaders need to reach out and not be afraid that they don't know everything. I think we live in a, I don't know about you, but when I was like 22, I thought the manager was like an all knowing, like all like, yeah. Now, you know, kind of like you, when you're young, you think parents are like this mythical creatures, right? Like, yeah, yeah. so- They got to fit everything figured out now, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> now that I've, I'm not 22, I understand this and I'm going to respect the leader who is willing to be vulnerable and reach out to try to help me a lot more than I am the person who just sort of knows everything, you know, who wants to be an empty shirt. Dude, dude, uh, man, everything that you're saying about being vulnerable right now to me is something that uh, is the most dangerous position for leaders to have. It's crazy. It is crazy what you said, because once you were speaking about it, I was like, man, what could leaders do to actually be dangerous? Like, because you have to be responsible. You have to be right. You can't just go around and be like, let's just dump the whole budget on this one marketing tactic that hopefully would drive leads so everyone can win. You have to be thoughtful. But being dangerous as a leader is actually being exposing yourself to criticism, exposing yourself to things that you have to go learn with your team. And and, and you do, and I just, you're absolutely right. I do not hear a lot of leaders taking that tone when it comes to working with salespeople because they probably <clears throat> got there because they were great at one point. And, you know, we, we know how fast things are changing these days from AI to, you know, outbound campaigns. Like things are just drastically different than they were 18 months ago. So I love that response, man. I appreciate that. I think back in maybe 2016, I had, uh, I had like two directors, seven or eight managers, give or take, whatever. And I hadn't received a review from my superior in the better part of a year. And 
Or if I did, it was one of those like printed out HR ones that don't really tell you anything. You know, like you just get threes and fours all the way down the line. Like, so I actually, I believe in helping you understand how to do better and why you're coming up short. And it's, it takes some, it takes effort, right. To actually have that conversation. But what I did is I actually turned around to my directors and and managers and said, guys, I need some feedback. And I had them review me. And you want to talk about being vulnerable and open. Like I was like, gave them carte blanche and I wanted to know. And I don't know how much they held back or pulled punches. I mean, some of them I was pretty close with and they, they knew there wouldn't be retribution if I didn't like it, but I can't say they all felt the same way. And, you know, one of the things that they did point out to me is that the times I was too casual with others and, mm. you know, where I might just be walking by and like, this is back when we were all in an office and I might make a, over here, a comment, make a sarcastic comment, trying to be, you know, a man of the people or something. <laughs> but they pointed out to me, they're like, bro, you, you, control our paychecks you control our raises the commissions like you fire people like being lighthearted and being able to joke with people is cool but you got to pick your spots a little better and i'm like okay that's a fair point you know like the, it wasn't something i was thinking about at that point and i was able to learn and actually improve but if i didn't ask a question nobody else was going to tell me and you have to be willing to you have to be willing to hear bad news like I've been saying this a lot lately. When did we get it into our heads that we had to have everything all figured out? Yeah, great point, bro. Great point. <laughs> no, I mean, man, you, you know, that's a that's a really good point because at some point it did happen. Like there's a there's a piece to where we have to go on LinkedIn and we have to act like we know how to grow every business in every industry if you're some type of marketing or like sales leader, right? <laughs> you, you know, like, 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 like at some point you have to know how to do it all. doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your experience in that space. So somewhere it clicked over. And I think, I mean, hopefully we're, we're having this counter culture movement that's, that, that is coming up from what you're saying where we don't have to know it all. We have to know what we should know, I think. And, and we have to be willing to kind of explore that that piece of it, that, that, that very narrow lane that we should be operating in. But, 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 but man, um, you know, it was kind of breaking up once I was bringing up this point before, but around failure, I think that you were talking about how you were creating these big goals. And I just don't think that people really, at least I don't see a lot of company, company cultures that I get a chance to kind of come face to face with that are comfortable with failure, you know? And I remember as a trainer, it was something that we really embraced and that we were operating on all cylinders. It was something that we really looked forward to bringing out of ourselves and our clients was, I don't need you to hit my number that we throw up on the board for you. I need you to give me what you got in the tank, you know? And um, have you seen companies kind of embrace failure differently over the time as well? Or, or is that something that you're kind of not really experienced that much as well? You know, I kind of feel like it's been going the other way. Um, <clears throat> you got to understand the space I've been working in primarily has been in logistics and freight technology and even, you know, SaaS. And those are industries that have been heavily pop, just heavily infused with outside money in the last several years. Yeah. So I don't feel like a lot of the plays are being run by the guys on the field. Um, you know, I feel like a lot of the plays are being called by people who don't understand the business they just bought into or the companies that they bought into. And, you know, I see it where, again, I'll just pick my last company for a minute. They, they put these goals out, which quite honestly were, they were large, but I didn't think they were obscene, mm-hmm. but they had, they were not able to tell you how to get it. So, you know, as a speaker coming up, speaker and a coach, I have my own coach and mm-hmm. they, 
you know, they sell you on this program. One of the ways saying is like, hey, this is how you build a million dollar a year coaching business, which of course sounds like a crazy BHAG, right? But they were, they're able to break it down into, you're going to do this many speaking engagements, this many coach, corporate coaching clients, this many individual clients. You want to add this many per month because you'll filter out some. And they give you the numbers of what breaks down on how to get there. And I couldn't get that on a quarterly basis from a job I had been in, you know, in an industry I've been in for like 20 years. And I think, again, that's a disconnect from having, you know, having uh, the football player later becomes a coach or the GM versus a private equity investor who just happened to buy a football team. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, I mean, um, that makes a ton of sense because it, there is a lot of capital being thrown at these, at these spaces. And I was in transportation at one point many moons ago. And I remember like, like it, it was a space I didn't realize how, how sales heavy it, it, it really is. It's a really sales heavy, uh, a space. And, and sometimes it seems like a, a fun thing to kind of lever some different things that have worked in other, other spots. But then we try to bring them into this nuance area. Man, it's from at least from the time I was there, I remember being super big into relationships. It was like once someone made that relationship, they didn't let them go. Like they would jump to different company all over the you know all over the actual globe, but they but they held that but they held that relationship, man. I mean, I mean from a we look at somebody that's trying to elevate themselves like the other side of the table now. Talk about the people that are on the front lines. They're like, man. I'm getting this actual strategy that's not aligning, <laughs> you know what I mean, with what I'm seeing in the front lines. My, my my manager is like a stone wall. It's like talking to, I'm just like blowing in the wind here. You know what I mean? He's not giving me any feedback. He or she's not giving me any feedback. How would you how would you kind of coach that person? Maybe uh, any thoughts for that person who's like on that side of the table looking to kind of for the manager or for the salesperson in that sense for that right for the actual salesperson the one that's like right on the front lines. So, you know, one of the things that I think that continues to create this divide is when the leaders don't want to get involved, there's there's no accountability, um, which even a lot of the most highly motivated salespeople without having a degree of accountability. I mean, we we gravitate toward we are designed for the path of least resistance, like as human beings, we are designed for the path of least resistance. So. I feel that no matter how hard you push yourself without some degree of help or guidance, that's what's going to happen. And so for that sales rep in that position, they need to have a mindset shift, a, a fundamental paradigm shift on personal responsibility. And you took the job. So do the job, you know, and like that's where. Well, nobody's answering the phone. Oh, well, my company sucks. Oh, well, your product sucks. Oh, well, like you took the job. That's. That has to be enough for me to dial the phone, send the emails, press the button is the fact that I'm an, I'm an adult. I went through 15 hoops to get this job. They gave it to me. There's a, tr there's a, a social contract between me and my employer, whether I think they're holding up their end or not, does not abdicate me from me holding up my own. I'm free to leave. I don't have to stay working there, but if I'm going to be on their paycheck, I am responsible for doing the job they hired me to do. And that's a lot easier to, easier said than done um, because it's a lot easier sometimes to get into the blame game, the excuse game, the resentment game. But there's a part of the story I didn't tell you is you have to have a purpose alignment, I believe, is the fuel that powers the most efficient engines. Mm -hmm. It's not what you're doing. It's why you're doing it. So for several months working in logistics where, you know, I was a VP of sales and I had 90 people working for me. 
working at a new company, opening in an office, private equity comes in, decides they don't need the offices, and I'm basically doing the sales rep job again. It's real easy for me to say, come on, I'm 44. What do I need to be doing this nonsense for? Instead, I'm like, I'm not doing it for them. I'm not doing it because they told me. I'm doing it because I have a home and a family and I have other things I want to do in my life. It's not because, oh, they told me to or I need to hit their numbers or I'm trying to make their company better. I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I can make phone calls without breaking a sweat. So it's not that hard of a life after all. But for that rep in that position, it's hard to disconnect yourself from that mindset of employee where this is your life and this is your ceiling and this is your wall and this is where you're going to spend it. Every uh, Everything that we're doing is an opportunity for whether it be learning or growth or getting ahead. So every action can either generate more revenue and if nothing else, practice, find out what works and what doesn't work, take it with you. But when we know why we're doing what we're doing, it makes it a lot easier to take personal responsibility for the things that we signed up for. Man, um, man, that's probably one of the better answers I've heard like in a long time because a lot of times, I mean, seriously, it's really easy to, to get into this whole blame game funnel. It's like they're upper management, you know, they should have this figured out because you go right back to being like a little kid and your parents ought to be doing better, like, because they already know it all, right? They got it all figured out. They don't have anything going on. <laughs> and so, therefore, it's their fault, right? Like, and that takes all the blame off of me. I don't have to hold myself accountable. And then I can skate by and just be the guy who just kind of just waste waste time how'd you get yourself into that mindset man i wish i could tell you it was always that way um you know i was brought up when i say brought up no that's not true my, my dad has strong work ethic so i did see some things from him but um i went to work at a young age when i was like 13 years old i used to fold pizza boxes and um then i worked to work at this muffin shop and they opened at six, but the cab drivers and fishermen, I grew up on an island, would be lining up around the block trying to get in at five. And I'd just go climb in the window and open up. Like, I worked 60, 70 hours a week. Like, I was breaking every child labor law I could because I was a worker. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I went to, and the guy who I worked for for a long time, he, I mean, we worked 20 hour days together. He, he, I learned a lot from him and his wife, both of them. They're like family to me. It's been 30 years just in terms of seeing work ethic and, it just became ingrained to me. But then I went to college and I had to pay my own way. And I worked 40, 50 hours a week in restaurants like Applebee's, Chili, stuff like that. And if I was going to be up on a Saturday night scrubbing the back wall of grease at Applebee's, when I went home, I wasn't, it was important to me to do well in school. Otherwise, why was I doing that? And so I just, I practiced a lot. <laughs> but when I kind of went out into the corporate world, I'll be honest, it went away. My first four or five years working in telecommunication sales, I was the guy that I talk about now. That's why I know this guy so well, because I was good at it until I stopped doing it. And then I blamed the market, the boss, the product, etc. And there was just, there was a, a time for me where it was like 2005. I don't know if this had anything to do with it, but I had just beaten cancer for the first time. And I moved to Florida, my ex-wife and I, she's my girlfriend at the time. And I just started working for the company that I ended up working for 14 years at. And I remember I had nothing going on. I had probably hit like 80 doors that day. It was three in the afternoon. It would have been real easy to be like, all right, I've done enough. But instead I'm like, no, I don't want to be that kid anymore. Hmm. That was it. I made a decision just like that. I'm not going to be that kid anymore. And so I just kept pounding out the doors because I'm like, I'm not working for some company that doesn't know who I am. I'm working to build a future. I want a career now. I don't want to 
have to decide which bill I have to pay for every month. It's so that that's there came that decision to take ownership over my career. Well, I mean, I mean, man, uh, I think that it's 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 really important that that we kind of talk about you having you know beat cancer four times. I mean, that's is I mean, that's a big deal right there, man. And I, I, I mean, at what age were you first diagnosed? Um, two thousand five. I was twenty six. 25. I was 25 when I first got diagnosed. 25. And when were you, so, and you're also like a type one uh, diabetic as well, right? Yeah. My story from like 2005 to like 2015 just blends into one big ass kicking. Um, I was diagnosed with uh, type with, um, sorry, with a uh, thyroid cancer in 2005. Um, I'm just give you a quick rundown. Cause I got, I just, got hit for years with this stuff. Uh, 2006, I had shoulder surgery. I was diagnosed with sleep apnea, finally, because um, I've had it for years. I just finally got the CPAP. The very next month, I lost, started losing weight, and I got type 1 diabetes um, in January 2007 at 27 years old. Later that year, I got cancer for the second time. Um, fast forward to 2013, I tore my hip. I had to have surgery. Uh, fast forward the very next year is when I got cancer for the third time. We'll put a little asterisk on that one and circle back to it in a minute. Um, if I hadn't already been well under the guise of alcoholism at that point, um, I was then and was just fully into the throes of drinking. And that's when um, that third cancer is still there. Technically, I'm only I'm three in one or three zero oh, in one against cancer because that tumor in my neck is pretty much inoperable and it's been sitting there for like 10 years and yeah that was tough to deal with because I'm definitely the guy who wants to take action and I was convinced after seeing like a staff of doctors that the best option was to leave it alone and at the time though I kind of knew I was at the end of my drinking but I wasn't ready yet and so that was the excuse I needed to just take the gloves off and finish the job, um, which turned out, and this is funny, I actually like to say how cancer saved my life because if it weren't for that cancer, I probably wouldn't have gotten just full blown into my alcoholism when I did. And a year after I got sober, my mom died and it was a very fractured relationship. And I sort of knew there was going to come a time in my life where that would have been Basically this, if I was still drinking when she died, it's really likely I would have drank until I died. And so I got cancer, I got sober. She passed away and I'm still here. Um, the fourth time I got cancer was right when I thought everything was good in my life too. Like I was sober for a couple of years. I had just been uh, promoted to vice president of my company. Job was going well. I was dating a great girl who's my now wife. And that's when I got cancer for the fourth time, which was a sarcoma in the back of my head, completely random. I found it during a massage nonetheless. Um, and when they cut out that tumor and they did the follow-up, out of all the cancers I've had, that's actually the one that I had an all clear on. It's the first time that they were like, okay, cancer's gone. And I'm like, wait, what? I win? I just win? I just win and go home? Like, that's it? I don't have to do like like ultrasounds every three months. I don't take a pill every day. Like I just, I'm done. Wow. Okay. And the irony is three weeks after that is when I was sitting in my office on a Friday afternoon in October. And my boss at the time walked into my office and said, I want you to do a Spartan race with me. And I'm like, no, hell no, that sounds terrible. Like an eight to 10 mile trail race. 
add in obstacles, uh-uh. I don't want to get that uncomfortable. And I went home that <laughs> night and I just basically reflected upon that journey that I just told you. And I realized I was that uncomfortable. I had all this stuff going for me and yet something was missing. And so I signed up for the race and that was the pivotal moment for the rest of my life. Just a commitment to that race is what has helped to transform everything that's happened since then. So what year was that, that you actually got started with the race? 2016. Man, that's awesome, man. And, and so how many races have you done since? I have completed 96 Spartan races, um, six major marathons and maybe 30 other obstacle races and endurance events. Dude, that's phenomenal, man. Big congratulations on that, bro. Because I, I think that the fact that um, the fact that you did one is a win. Like, I mean, but the fact that you've done you know, 100 plus now, obstacle plus races, like 130 plus, I was like, I mean, man, that's that's phenomenal, man. And and leveraging something as big as cancer as a reason to kind of catapult you into, you know, wanting to even double down. Like, that's a that's a different flip to me of, of a straight mindset, man. Like, like most people don't say, hey, you know what? I got a lot going on already. I think I should press into that further. Uh, is that <laughs> what kind of caused that? I mean, I feel like that's something that I, I, I want to just dissect here for a second. Well, you know, at that point, it wasn't. I wasn't feeling like I was in the fire. Um, okay. I was. I was empty. I. I was whole. You know, I was. I literally was sitting around on a Friday night, in my nice house, like mm -hmm. everything's great, but something just I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't know what it was. And I think it's, you know, I had gotten rid of, I, I, there was a vacuum left by probably all of the challenges. And you know, a lot of what we didn't talk about is we all have our, our origin stories and things that we carry with us from childhood and probably angers and fears and resentments. And I had also let a lot of those go in those first two years of sobriety too. And so I just found myself into this sort of safe plateau where I think, I think most people desire that feeling of comfort, but they're wrong. <laughs> um, it's good to feel that way from time to time, but I needed something to change my life because I'm an achievement driven person. For me, overcoming cancer was the achievement. For me, getting diabetes and then deciding to not be a victim about it was an achievement. For me, get, be, having sleep apnea from the time I was like 22 and having to sleep with a sleep machine till, from when I was in my early 20s and being tired all the time for the last 20 something years and deciding not to let that interfere with me living my day-to-day -day life. Doesn't mean I'm, I'm gonna feel great every day. Like I can tell you, I remember with distinct certainty the last night I woke up with a good night's rest and it's been a couple of decades, but I'm still, so what? There's no, you wanna talk about doubling down? It's not just that I've almost died a lot, but I am acutely aware of the, how fragile and how valuable life is. And I absolutely, I want to make sure I leave it all in the field. I just want to make sure I get it all in there. And best way to do it is to not let these things prevent us from living our life. Like, again, the same concept of why do we have to think we have it all figured out? Whoever told us we're supposed to feel good about all the time, who told us everything we're supposed to do isn't supposed to come with pain or discomfort or that it's not supposed to be hard. Like, where do we get it in our lives that life is just supposed to be this, this easy tourist ride? <laughs> I, I mean, man, you know, one thing I respect about both of our cities is that uh, coming up in Pittsburgh is a very blue collar industrial type thing. Like all the all my heroes were guys that I saw like going to work, you know, 
catching the bus, and then they walked up our hill where our actual house was. It's a pretty steep hill. And, like, those are the guys. I was like, man, these guys are winning. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was just, like, who I thought. I didn't even really know about movie stars that much because we didn't do a lot of TV. It was just, it was just those people, right, the people that were just working hard. And you saw they were, they were tired after work, man. And, and, and I think those things are the, the elements that I, um, I hope people don't ever lose sight of, personally. Because uh, it, it really gives you the actual nuances of what living really feels like, right? Like, you know, it's the it's the tired days and it's the ugly moments. And, man, um, I, I think you have a phenomenal story that, man. I really hope more people will really get a chance to hear it. So, so let's talk about what you have lined up in the future. I know you're trying to build this actual coaching business. I mean, but, like, I mean, I, I really hope that you can get in front of more and more sales leaders. But, yeah, tell us, what's kind of next for you coming up? Um, you know, from the professional standpoint, um I left my company about five weeks ago and okay. uh, let's just say I was not financially prepared to do so. But so the options to do other things come up all the time, but I'm all in on this. Um, Love it. You can't create, uh, for lack of a better word, a brand one foot in one foot out. And you can't, mm-hmm. you can't become a full-time speaker and coach when you're full-time live, working for somebody else and living somebody else's dream. So I'm all in on this. And yes, I'm actively, actively pursuing uh, speaking engagements. But even if I book 10 today, they're not going to happen till February, March, August. So um, I'm going to continue to look for coaching opportunities, preferably with sales teams and remote sales teams, because again, that's where I think I can make the most immediate impact. And I also think it's more palatable price tag for sort of mid-market organizations. Mm-hmm. Um I would love the opportunity, I guess, to do some one-on-one coaching, primarily with accountability and goal setting. Uh, my whole thing is always going to be about mindset, removing the barriers that prevent you from doing the things that you want to do and even wanting to do them. Like, I love this concept of, you know, setting those, those BHAGs. I call them epic goals. Those, those goals that are borderline unachievable because I want that fuck yeah moment. That's what I'm chasing every single year. And so, by breaking them down into those manageable chunks is what gives you the plans to pursue. So anyways, I know I just went off on a tangent there. That's the business aspect. I'm going to run hard. I want to be coaching and speaking um, physically because my, my business as far as, you know, obstacle course racing isn't a hobby for me. It's a lifestyle and it's part of my platform. It's, it's for me to overcome. So I got hurt in a race a few weeks ago. I, I strained my hamstring and, you know, so I'm doing another race next weekend. Now this is, I'm going to take this one easy, <laughs> but um, but on April 27th, I turned 45 and I am going to do the Spartan Ultra in Mount Vernon, New Jersey. Because uh, what go. better way to break the year in than climbing a mountain? So that's my first big goal is that's concerned. Dude, dude, uh, I love everything that you're talking about right now, man. I mean, um, I got some people that I want to look up who's an actual boss in there that might be able to help you out. I work with a lot of PTs and these actual sports chiros that actually treat a lot of these athletes like yourself who kind of go hard on themselves, man. Um, but so definitely want to see if I can try to get you with some guys up in that, up in that area. But, 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 but man, uh, on top of that, dude, um, let's, if you don't mind me just kind of pressing a little bit further, cause I really want to do what, you know, anytime I hear somebody like making that leap, man, I know exactly how it is. Cause I, I made a leap when I wasn't ready, when I first got married within six months of the marriage. And I feel like it was a, it was a storm afterwards. Right. Like, it was just like, you know, like I didn't know where to start. I have a plan. You're much further. You aren't there obviously, but I mean, um, but could, could you maybe just tell the audience what's the industries that you're looking to work with? Um, you know, company size, any type of details there that might, you know, at least somebody could possibly just raise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
again, I'm not pigeonholing myself here. I just feel the place I can make the most immediate impact is going to be with sales teams, preferably remote sales teams. Um, I think I can help them in terms of that mindset, adaptability, the personal responsibility and accountability. And I really think I can help with them with the purpose alignment specifically to help connect the rep leadership and the leadership goals. And, you know, an aligned company is always going to be more just like a car. How, how well does your car run when it's out of alignment? Um, so I'm working, uh, I am specifically targeting logistics, freight technology, and really telecom right now, only because that's where my contacts and network come from. It's not like the things I'm going to talk about are specific to those industries, but I do know I've, I've walked in their shoes for two decades now. So there's a lot of very specific things that I can, can help contribute. Um, you know, I'm probably looking at organizations that are 500 to 5,000 and I'm only, again, not pigeonholing myself. I just think that's probably where I fit the best right now, where I can help make those impacts. And also the companies that probably have a budget for the types of services that I would be looking to provide. Nick, man. Yeah. Definitely want to be super supportive of your goals and you really get out the gate strong, man. Um, cause I, I think especially whenever you start a brand new business, at least from my experience, the more allies that you can get on there, the better, right? People are like, know what you want to accomplish and they can help drive more people in the actual boat with you. So anybody that's listening, please go out, check out Nick's page on LinkedIn. Nick, do you have any like websites you want to leave with the audience so you can at least tell you how to find you? I can ch- find me on stridemotivation.com or on any social pretty much at stride motivation. That's where I'll be posting my daily motivational videos, um, clips from podcasts, and, well, any other good vibes we can find. Love it, man. Love it, man. One last thing as we wrap up, and then we'll be done here. One thing that you want to leave sales leaders going into 2024 about what they ought to be doing to help align that team. Just maybe a thought, question, whatever you want to leave with them with. Ask your team what their goals are and help them achieve them. That's it. That's simple. Just find out what it is that they're looking to accomplish and remove the barriers for them to do so. Don't be so afraid to not have the answer they're looking for. Boom. We're out of here, Nick. Appreciate that, man. Awesome.